The 2022 Academy Award nominations are out. Today's guest says they celebrate a remarkable array of films exploring topics as diverse as toxic masculinity and environmental catastrophe. He's film critic Pete Hammond this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. The Academy Award nominations are out, and we're here today to talk about them with Pete Hammond, the awards columnist and chief film critic for Deadline. He joins us today from his home in California. Pete, thanks so much for being with us. Absolutely. Good to see you again. You know, you were with us uh, a year ago to talk about the Academy Awards, and we should say that this year's are set for Sunday, March 27th at 8 p.m. Eastern and 5 p.m. Pacific. Before we get into some of the films that are nominated, we're at the end of the second full year of the pandemic. What's the state of Hollywood and the film industry in general after this this incredible two years? I think it's uh, hopefully coming back uh, ever so slowly. Right now, there's enthusiasm. Uh, that, uh, you know, we're, we're getting rid of a lot of mask mandates and different things uh, in Hollywood and hopefully for the Academy Awards is what that means, too, because we're hoping that it looks like the Academy Awards and not like last year's uh, debacle of a show that was necessitated by the pandemic but was very low key and kind and and just kind of weird uh, for the Oscars, which is a big glamour red carpet, you know, full audience event. And that's what they're going for again here, a sort of a back to normalcy idea, get the stars out again and celebrate what I think has been a pretty good year for movies. And the industry has kept making them during the pandemic, which is amazing. And turned out, if you look at all these movies that have been released in this year, most of them have COVID advisors on the end credits. So they did it during a pandemic. So when we talked a year ago, the industry was celebrating a remarkably diverse group of Oscar nominees is is representation still an issue this year for for the for the Academy? I haven't heard that. Uh, they've had other problems this year, but um, uh, Oscars so white isn't one of them. Um, uh, they've had a number of nominees um, in the acting categories again. Of course, Denzel Washington and Will Smith, Ariana DeBose, which who is an Afro Latina. Um, here, you know, and, and, and getting diversity in uh, many other categories here, uh, females in the cinematography category now, which is only the second one ever, Ari Wagner for Power of the Dog nominated there. Uh, they seem to be very conscious of, of this and uh, diversity has not come up in any controversial way this year. Um, you know, of course, we always want more we all, you know, everybody, you know, says, well, th this one didn't get nominated or that one didn't. But the fact is, uh, it's a pretty good lineup uh, and, and fairly diverse. And that, I think, is due to the Academy changing its membership and, um, and expanding. Now there's over 10,000 members and, and uh, they've really gone global. So there's a big international footprint now in the Academy as well. 
Pete, let's turn to the films that are nominated for Best Picture this year. We'll get into the specifics, but from the broadest perspective, what's your overall assessment of this year's crop of Best Picture nominees? Well, I think they represent uh, what we've been going through in the pandemic, a need for connection, a need for family. You see in the Best Picture lineup uh, an extraordinary kind of group of films that deal with that idea. Uh, Belfast, which is about a family trying to survive the uh, troubles in Northern Ireland in 1969. King Richard, which is a family uh, in the tennis world there, but very much a family unit uh, as portrayed in that movie. Coda, which is dealing with the deaf community and a family unit there where there's a hearing person and, and the brother and the parents are deaf and it's dealing with that. Um, a lot of that kind of movie, I call them, and we are calling them in Hollywood right now, the heart movies that have come out here. And I don't think it's an accident. I think, uh, I think Academy voters and in other groups too have connected with that. And so you have that. Now, on the other hand, you have the, the front runner with 12 nominations, The Power of the Dog, which was anything but a warm-hearted kind of family movie. So there's that aspect too. But um, I do think there's more on the other end of it. So it's, it makes for an interesting kind of race just on that level. And uh, then of course you have, you know, you have a, a lot of diversity in the kinds of movies. We have West Side Story, Steven Spielberg, who has remade a movie you know, 60 years ago, it became the most honored movie and still is West Side Story in Academy history, honored movie musical, uh, winning 10. And now we have it, uh, you know, happening again here. And uh, so I think that's really interesting uh, to see how that will do uh, here. No remake has ever won uh, Best Picture um, and no remake actually has ever been nominated in this way either. So, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting in that way. Well, so let's run through some of these in specific detail. So you mentioned Belfast, which is a, just a, I, I think personally, my favorite of the 10 that were nominated this year, this was just a beautiful film uh, from Kenneth Branagh. Oh God. I love Belfast. I happen to have seen it. I'm in this kind of secret little um, group where they just basically put a film on the screen on an ND. And, uh, and, and I didn't even know Ken Branagh had made the movie until the end credits rolled. So I saw it cold and I was just blown away by it. It's a very nice memoir. It's his story, essentially, uh, growing up in Northern Ireland, Ireland on that street and beautifully cast, wonderful cast, largely Irish uh, actors, Jamie Dornan, Katrina Bell, um, Kieran Hines. Of course, it has Judy Dench in it. And uh, the little kid is great. But it's in beautiful black and white, all that Van Morrison music on the soundtrack. Van Morrison's nominated in the best song category. It's one that we connect with. Again, it's what I was saying before. It's about family. And it's about family going through hard times. And what could be more appropriate right now? Because there's a lot of families going through hard times. And there is still that connection that comes through. And very importantly, I think uh, that Academy members will like is a love for movies, a love for the past too, the movies of the past as this kid is a movie nut and he's always going to movies. So you see all those film clips from Raquel Welch in 1 million years BC to Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, just a wonderful kind of thing that emphasizes the theatrical experience sitting in a movie theater, something that we hadn't been able to do. Uh, for a while. And this movie just reinforces that. So uh, we're going in alphabetical order here. Let's have you talk about CODA. And I would note it's from 
Apple original films. Yeah, it, it is. It wasn't an Apple film when it started its life at the Sundance Film Festival, not year, but a year ago. And it won every conceivable award. It broke all records at Sundance, winning four awards, the, the audience awards, the jury awards, anything you could win. And, um, and I think it, it just touched the heart. And uh, it definitely did. But it also is a very smart movie. It's a remake of a 2014 French film that starred hearing actors playing deaf uh, uh, characters. This they would not make. They got Marley Matlin involved, probably the, obviously the best known um, and Oscar winning uh, deaf actress. And uh, she refused to do it unless they made this family authentic. And so they hired uh, a deaf uh, actor, Troy Kotzer. Um, the brother is played by a deaf actor and, and it's very authentic in that way. And, and it just shows that this family's problems are very universal. You know, it's not limited to, uh, you know, just the deaf community. And I think that's why it's uh, really struck a chord as well. And to last, all the way from Sundance, get picked up for $25 million out of the Sundance Film Festival at, by Apple and then streaming on Apple. And it's gone all the way now to get three Oscar nominations and, uh, and a Best Picture nomination there included in that. This was emotionally one of the most affecting films for me. I, the 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 story of the family and uh, just the re the resolution of it. I just found beautiful, for lack of a better word. It was just a beautifully told story. Yeah, it is, and uh, it's also very funny. I, the relationship <laughs> between the two parents is hilarious. I mean, they're horny as hell. You know? <laughs> <laughs> It's just like, you know, it, it, it has all these elements in it that people really love. Well, so uh, speaking of funny, the end of the world. Uh, so uh, <laughs> Don't Look Up from Adam McKay and Kevin Messick uh, and Netflix is satire. And I think it might be the funniest movie about the end of the world that I've ever seen. Yeah, uh, next to Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> to which it's been compared. It's yeah. a terrific movie. Uh, I really liked it. It's an all-star cast. Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer, uh, uh, on and on, Meryl Streep, uh, uh, um, Jonah Hill. Uh, it's really, really fun. Adam McKay is that rare breed right now in movies. He's like a Billy Wilder. He's a satirist, and he takes things. I was talking to him, actually, three years ago when uh, he had um, another movie out, Veep, and uh, uh, our vice actually. And, um, and he, he uh, I said, what can you do next? And he says, I don't know. I, I wanna do something about climate change. That's literally what he said. And this is what he came up with, which is not on its surface about climate change, but is the perfect satirical vehicle, you know, a comet coming to earth and the world we live in 24 hour news cycle and all these people who are so unconcerned seemingly with this. And just these two characters played by Leo and Jennifer that uh, are trying to warn people, there's a comet that's going to destroy the planet. I thought it was a very funny idea, but it has something to say. And I thought that was really cool. It, it, it was one of my favorites for sure. And, and, you know, you make a good point. It's hard to do brilliant satire. Yeah. And I think Don't Look Up clearly fits that 
description. It, it's just a marvelous film. It's a long film, but it's it's worth every minute of watching. So talk about Drive My Car. Again, we're going in alphabetical order here. What What's yeah. the story about Drive My Car? Well, if you had told me when I saw Drive My Car before the Cannes Film Festival happened this year, it was in July, and it was sent to me by the publicist. They said, this is a competition. And I, I didn't even go to Cannes this year, but I was reviewing films as I could here. And I said, great, I'll sit here and watch it. It's three hours. It's 40 minutes before the opening credits happen. <laughs> <laughs> and so you really have to invest your time. It is a Japanese film. It's a very you know insular kind of story about this man who's going through a tragedy in his own personal life and also is a stage director. And he's going to direct a production of Uncle Vanya. Uh, in Hiroshima, and so he gets a driver. So there is that, and it's a lot of talk, and it and it goes on, and it's a lot of Chekhov, and it's a lot of um, uh, things familiar to Japanese audiences, but again, has a universal kind of theme, I think, too, that connects. You know, a lot of people are uh, going through a lot of introspection, and what does life mean, essentially? Drive my car, hit a nerve there. I was surprised, though, that it has gone all the way to get a best picture nomination and director and screenplay. I thought maybe that's, but the critics groups awarded this best picture um, by several of the top ones, LA, New York, National Society. And I think that really helped, got some Academy members to actually look at the film and, uh, and see what was going on with it. What about Doom? <laughs> That's what from... about Dune? <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us about Dune. It's from Warner that's, Brothers. That's a great segue. <laughs> <laughs> it was you totally could... unintentional. Trust me. <laughs> you could not find something more opposite of Drive My Car in yeah. terms of what it is. Dune is a, is a return to big, giant, epic filmmaking, but one with a really intelligent screenplay and, and uh, Denis Villeneuve who directed it and, and co-wrote the screenplay and all of that, uh, really was a fan of the book. And so he went back to what made the book so amazing. It's, it's lasted for so many years and so many generations keep picking it up. Uh, instead of the David Lynch version of Dune, which was a bit of a disaster, uh, he took this and got to the heart of, of what Frank Herbert's book was about and also gave it this production value. That's why it has 10 nominations uh, and probably will win most of them, you know, in terms of production design and its look, its visual effects and cinematography and the music score by Hans Zimmer. It's just beautifully made. And um, I only wish it had opened exclusively in theaters rather than having to share it on HBO Max because of what Warner Brothers was doing last year because of the pandemic. But it is one that must be seen on the big screen the, just, just for the visuals alone i would think yeah uh, it's a warner brothers film another warner brothers film though is king richard yeah it's a great movie i really liked it um my father was a tennis pro i've always been into tennis so you don't need to be into tennis to like that because again as i mentioned before this is one of those movies it's a true family story and a, a very true story too obviously uh serena and venus williams 
and their sisters. And so it's this family that grew up in this family unit and, and kind of run by a very, not necessarily always likable man here, but one very determined. I mean, he literally, before he had the two daughters, Venus and Serena, had a plan to turn them into tennis superstars before they were born. It's, it's remarkable. And, uh, and he, you know, is kind of, you know, bullheaded in, in a lot of ways and thought he knew best. But, you know, in the end, this movie shows that and has a spectacular performance by Will Smith, which will probably win him an Oscar. And uh, Anjanou Ellis as his uh, wife is wonderful in it, too. Uh, the girls are believable as tennis players, which is tough for actors. They had to learn that. But it's a movie about the family unit. You like it? because you love this family working together and you love the interactions between them. And uh, it's also, we talked about diversity. It's wonderful to see this black family growing up in Compton, California, which gets a bad rap a lot of the times, but it shows um, that wonderful kind of family life uh, on that basis that we don't always get to see portrayed on the screen. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can find me at J.M. Lutus. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is one of the best film critics working today. Pete Hammond is the awards columnist and chief film critic for Deadline. You can find him on Twitter at DeadlinePete. That's D-E-A-D-L-I-N-E-P-E-T-E. -E -E. So licorice pizza from MGM United Artists. Give us loved a story it. on that. You it's loved so it. Good. Paul Thomas Anderson. You know, the Academy loves Paul Thomas Anderson. Before this, he had had eight Oscar nominations. Now he has uh, 11 because he got three for this. Picture, screenplay, director. Uh, he always comes up with something different. This is a return to his roots, actually the lightest kind of film, I think. The one he's having the most fun with, set again in his beloved San Fernando Valley, and really a quirky kind of story, a coming-of-age story, not about the 15-year-old kid at its center. Uh, that kid has already come of age. You know he's going to, you know, rule the world. But the 25-year-old girl that he gets involved with, and it's really kind of her coming-of-age story. So it's different. And uh, wonderful actors um, that you know, like Bradley Cooper doing a, a kind of fun impression of John Peters, the producer, and um, as Sean Penn, who's playing a thinly disguised William Holden. I mean, wild kind of roles there, but also it's two leads. Um, uh, Cooper Hoffman, who is uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, and Alana Haim, who Anderson actually wrote this for her. She's part of the musical group, the Haim's uh, Sisters, and uh, he produced some of their music videos. So that's how he knew her. She'd never acted before. I just thought it was a, a wonderful movie. It, 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 you know, it, it works on so many levels. Anderson's just a great writer. And, uh, you know, for me, Licorice Pizza also is a wonderful piece of nostalgia, too, growing up in Southern California, as I have. 
Pete, you mentioned uh, Bradley Cooper. He uh, is is the leading man in Nightmare Alley from Guillermo del Toro. Uh, this is a this is a really interesting atmospheric film noir. Yeah, have you seen the original film? No, I didn't know there was a, an original. Yes, from 1946 and our 47 uh, starred uh, Tyrone Power. And uh, it's very much, if you see that film and you see this film, you will definitely know it's from the same source. And it is a remake of that, but a very different kind of remake. Uh, Guillermo del Toro, who's just a genius, uh, has shot it in color. That film was in black and white, a real film noir. This is a color film noir. Ironically, he also shot it in black and white, and they've since released a black and white version of this, which is interesting to see side by side, but it doesn't have the same kind of trajectory with the Bradley Cooper character that Tyrone Power did. In those days, you could see the studio interfering, said, we can't end it like this. This movie has a very tough ending and a very interesting character to see where Cooper gets. I think the Academy missed the boat in not nominating Bradley Cooper for this film. It's, it was a remarkable performance. It's a great performance. It may just be too tough uh, and, and whatever. It did get a Best Picture nomination and some technical um, ones as it well deserved. But you know, it, so, so the, you know, the, 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 the old English student in me though was mesmerized by the presence of precipitation, uh, both frozen and liquid throughout the film. Uh, I haven't, I haven't still figured out what that's about, but there seems to be, to be, has to be some sort of significance to that. That's interesting. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I mean, Del Toro is a student of everything. So uh, that would be an interesting thing. What's in his head in creating this, but you're absolutely right. When you think about it, there is a lot of that. A lot. There's a lot. So um, (laughs) movies that have endings that sort of leave you, uh, we have to talk about the power of the dog but we won't talk about the ending because we don't want to give anything away. But this is uh, uh, just an incredible film. Yes. Well, Jane Campion, who's a beloved filmmaker from Australia, uh, has not made a feature film in 12 years. And she had done Top of the Lake for a television miniseries and things like that. But uh, she decided when she finally got a hold of this book by Thomas Savage, which was written in 1967, it was actually first optioned by Paul Newman, who wanted to play the Benedict Cumberbatch role. And when I saw the movie, I actually said, the first time I interviewed uh, her, I said, you know, no, I interviewed Benedict Cumberbatch. And I said, this would have been, this movie reminded me of HUD, the movie that Paul Newman did in 63. And he said, that's really funny because Paul Newman wanted to play this character. And I said, see? I wow. knew it, you know, it was wow. of that time and it took all those years, but it is that, I wouldn't even call him an anti-hero because he's not a likable character. He's a very tough character, but it attracted a, a great character actor slash movie star like Newman. Uh, and you could see that all these years later, it, it still has that in Benedict Cumberbatch, but you, it's such a three-dimensional character. You really see his conflict with his own sexuality and everything. It's a very unusual story. I can see why Hollywood might've shied away from it. It's not an easy story to pigeonhole or to shoot. And uh, all credit to Jane Campion for finding a way into that book uh, and, and making this movie finally. And a wonderful cast beyond Benedict Cumberbatch as well. So the last on our list, this is a movie that's gotten a lot of buzz. It got buzzed before it was shot, it got buzzed when it was released and it's still getting buzzed, West Side Story. And of right. course, that's 
that's from Disney and from Steven Spielberg. Talk yeah, about it's actually that. from 20th Century Fox, which Disney swallowed up. And so they inherited it that way. Um, and uh, uh, Fox uh, gave the go ahead when they were a standalone studio to remake this. I think it was a, I, first of all, when I heard they were remake, I'd go, why? Why would you remake Howard the Duck or something? <laughs> but don't remake. That's hilarious. They, he should remake that. <laughs> I mean, why would you remake a, a, this kind of iconic movie that already has won all these awards and things? But what what they did, keeping it in the time period that it was set, it was very true to that, you know, Sondheim and um, uh, Leonard Bernstein and Jerome Robbins, the original, all set in the 50s. But now when you see these gangs and you see the gentrification going on, Adam Stockhausen's amazing production design there uh, in New York, and, and you see what the hopelessness for these groups here, it really does resonate today. I, I really could see the Jets almost as a version of the Proud Boys right now in Oof. their own way. Wow. And um, the Sharks also having their neighborhood rolled over by what later was to become Lincoln Center, uh, you know, and pushed out the immigrant experience. And I think um, Tony Kushner's uh, adaptation is a very it's very viable and i think that's what attracted spielberg to the idea of making it other than the fact too that he always loved west side story growing up so pete you know we uh we we we, we breeze through these uh 10 episodes we got a 27 minute show here 10 10 movies to talk about and you do such a wonderful job sort of encapsulating what what we're going to be talking about uh around the around the awards themselves i asked you this question last year i want to ask you again are there any films that you saw this year that you should that you thought should have been nominated for Best Picture? I was really happy this year with with the the lineup that they came up with, but I loved being the Ricardos. Mm. I thought Aaron Sorkin did a great job in telling the love story, marriage, divorce of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz and compri compressing it into one week in the making of I Love Lucy, but it's not about I Love Lucy, it's about them. And I thought the acting was great, but I thought it was so brilliantly written, a very challenging script. He didn't even get nominated for original screenplay. I think they're just jealous of Aaron Sorkin now because he's a friggin' genius, but- um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I think you're right, because he is a genius, there's no question. <laughs> and I really liked that film and I would have liked to have seen that uh, make the 10 but you know they for now they're back to a solid 10 nominees for the first time in several years uh the whole idea there was to get spider-man and james bond and maybe those nominated and i would say also both those uh huge hit movies are worthy of best picture nominations they're both culminations of their own story spider-man um, i thought was a spectacular piece of filmmaking on that level and also, I really like No Time to Die, the James Bond film. I, I thought that took great risk. I thought Daniel Craig was great. I would have liked to have seen them in their academy, maybe lose your snobbery over movies that make money. I know you want to work in the business and make all the money that these movies make. But when it comes time to vote, you just like go the other way. I, I think these are art in their own ways as well. So I would have liked to have seen those, one of them at least, get into this top 10. 
Well, the Academy Awards are set for Sunday night, March 27th at 8 p.m. Eastern and 5 p.m. Pacific. Pete Hammond, thank you so much for going over the best nominees, the best picture nominees this year with us. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thank you. He's Pete Hammond with Deadline. That's all the time we have this week. But if you want to know more about storing the public square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org. We can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.